can grab your Bibles, and you can turn, if you like, uh, to the middle of chapter 6 of the book of Luke. That's where we are. And we're traveling through this book. Uh, can you imagine uh, uh, one of the Gospels written by, written by a physician, a medical doctor? And he set out, didn't he? He tells us this, that he set out to write a real historical account It was well-researched and scholarly, and this gospel book is warm to your heart because this is the gospel of the, or this is the book of the universal gospel. This is the one that shows us that the, the prince and the pauper can be saved, and that this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks can be saved, that this type of person and that type of person, and it focuses on Jesus' humanity, which is a beautiful doctrine to think about and to be blessed in. That he, Jesus came to earth and he was as you are, a human being, yet he was without sin. So he knows your every temptation. He knows your every hurt, your every insecurity. Not that he was insecure, but he knows what it is to be hungry and to be tired and to be worn out. And he knows what it is to spend time in fellowship with the Father. That's one of the main themes of this book. It's just prevalent throughout how Christ went back to the Father for resource and strength in prayer and communion. How much more should we uh, be uh, in prayer? Remember at the very beginning, the first four verses, Luke wrote in a very formal type of Greek to let us know that this is highly researched. You can count on this gospel. You can count on all the Gospels, of course, but you can count this this account of Jesus' life. And what we've been trying to do here over the last few weeks and to continue each time we we preach and teach and come together and study the Scriptures is just to lay open all the glories of Christ and to see them in His Word and then to take those in and to get to that place where the Bible tells us we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then go and love our neighbor. How can we do that? How could we ever do that? Well, how would we be able to do that unless we knew the Scriptures to know what Christ has done and is doing and will do? And that's a plug for Wednesday night because on Wednesday night we're going to go through the glorious chapter of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. And so, we've seen Jesus' birth, how it was announced to his mom, and how his mom and his relative Elizabeth visited together. And John the Baptist, who came from Elizabeth and Zacharias, paved the way for the Messiah. All the prophecies have been, or were coming true, and we've seen them come true, and Christ born of Mary, and the how we wouldn't announce it this way. God did announce it this way. He announced it through a little slobbery trough in a little 
out-of-the-way place called Bethlehem to fulfill the scriptures and the prophecies. He announced his coming to not ambassadors or senators or politicians or business people. No, he, he announced it through the, uh, the shepherds, the ones with the stinky job, alone, all alone. What a backwards way to announce the coming of the Messiah. And yet, Jesus, or excuse me, God uses the foolish things of man to confound the wise. And we see these beautiful people at the temple, Simeon and Anna, blessing the Lord in the house of the Lord to see the Messiah and to be blessed by seeing the Messiah, waiting all their lives for that. Immediately after Jesus then is baptized. Oh yes, Jesus was baptized by by John the Baptist. Why would Jesus be baptized? To relate to us, to identify to us, and to legitimize John the Baptist's ministry. He didn't have any sin. And we remember that he waited in line. He stood in the back. Isn't that beautiful? He stood in the back. And he begins his Galilean ministry, and he's rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. So rejected that he was... uh, they, they threatened to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to throw him off the cliff and kill him. The people who grew up with him and loved him and knew him. And we said, didn't we? Oh, man, the experience... If, if, if Folks, listen to this. If the experience you have in church through other people is bad, and sometimes it's not bad. Sometimes we just get our feelings hurt. Sometimes it's bad. Jesus had poor experiences at church but he kept going. In fact, the next time we see him, he's teaching in uh, the synagogue and some demoniac stands up and starts screaming at him. And he tells us and shows us that he is Lord over the spiritual and has that, those demons come out of this man. He cruises home from church with his buddies to go enjoy a lunch and his mother in, or Peter's mother-in-law has a high fever, Luke tells us, and he heals that fever. He has power over the physical. Even after that, he heals many after sunset, and he preaches. He has a teaching ministry. Then he calls his first four disciples, and after that, Luke tells us about a story about a leper. And that's important. He would start telling you these like parables or these stories that have these pictures associated with it. Of course, leprosy is that picture of sin, your sin nature. It starts underneath and it grows slowly, but it grows to grotesque proportions. It comes from underneath, but it shows itself on the outside. It's a picture as he heals this leper, uh, Jesus telling us that he's the answer for our sin nature. And next he heals a paralytic because sin paralyzes. And the things that we do are give paralysis to our spiritual life. And so he heals them. And so we learned right out of the gate as Jesus starts his ministry that the most important thing is not the physical. It's the spiritual. In fact, at the paralytic, uh, when he meets the paralytic, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. I mean, can you imagine what the paralytic and some of the people around, they must have been scratching their head. Wait a minute, I'm here for walking And he says, yes, but your sins are forgiven because that's the chief need of man and women to have their sins forgiven and to be released in freedom to live the life that they were intended to live. 
He calls, doesn't he? Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector. As we saw last week in the calling of the 12 apostles, not only was Matthew picked, the tax collector, and we went through all of that. He was a hated person, the tax collector was, by his own countrymen. Within the 12, he picks Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. You just wouldn't do that, folks. That's like putting cats and dogs together, but worse. These zealots had little knives, and they would go around, and they were a terror group because anybody they uh, uh, thought was uh, betraying their country, they wanted to kill. And Jesus, through through God's direction, brings together these normal people, these fishermen and these brothers Some of these nondescript people that you really don't hear much about, these 12. But two of them are diametrically opposed to each other in political views and economic views. And think about it, folks. There's room under the blood of Christ for all types. Watch what you do about putting labels on people. Don't put labels on people. As my friend John told me just this weekend again, or this week, You know, when you encounter people, folks, their lives are not set in stone. They're on a journey. Not everybody believes the exact same little thing you believe. Don't give up on them because of that. Actually, maybe it's the Lord speaking to you or to me when people are pointed or sharp and you think you just can't get along with him. Well, remember the story of Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Jesus brought him close and spent three years together with them. Well, after that, uh, after he calls Matthew, Jesus now is beginning to be questioned by the religious leaders. There's questions about fasting and about working on the Sabbath, and Jesus tells us that he has the authority to know if the, the Sabbath was broken or not because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he is God. And we recognize as we read and understand the Bible that the Sabbath is not about a particular day. Are you getting this? Write this down. <laughs> the Sabbath isn't about a particular day. It's about a particular person. Jesus Christ is our rest. We can Sabbath all day, every day. And we talked about this, right? The way in which God created the earth was work, 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 rest. But the the church today rests and then works, 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 works. It's the picture of the gospel. The former is the picture or the, uh, yeah, the picture of the law. The latter where we rest first in Christ. Today, we're resting. He's filling us up for a light or a week of working in Him and pointing people to Jesus. We get to go out Monday through Saturday, and of course Sunday too, but Monday through Saturday, you get my point, and share His love and light. And we do it out of a position of rest, not a position of obligation. What a beautiful thought. And so he picks these 12 apostles. We somewhat talked about that last week. 
But remember this, he, uh, we're going to actually start in verse 12. It says, it came to pass in those days of chapter 6 that he went out to the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. Think about that. Jesus Christ spent the entire night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. So there's these disciples, they're learners, they're, they're students, disciples of Christ. But from the disciples, he picks 12 to be his apostles, his sent out ones, because Jesus is doing the new thing, the covenant of grace. There's neither Greek nor Jew in Christ. There's neither slave nor free man in Christ. There's neither male nor female in Christ. He's doing a new thing. And so he calls out 12. Remember, there were 12 tribes under the law. He calls out 12. And who does he call? He calls first Simon Peter. You know him. And Andrew, his brother. Oh yeah, it's, you got to get brothers on the list, right? Don't. What do brothers tend to do? Fight and argue and comp- compete and, and you, you, know, uh, you know, all the testosterone and everything. And for good measure, he puts on two more, Andrew and his brother James. Or and Andrew, his brother, sorry. And then James and John, right? Those two brothers, sorry. And Philip and Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel in another gospel. Then Matthew, who's also called Levi. And Thomas. And then there's James the son of Alphaeus, not the son of Zebedee. That's James and John, remember that. So Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. And there's this Judas, who's also called Thaddeus. Why do you think the Bible supplies you with another name for that Judas? (laughs) Because he doesn't want to be associated with the next Judas, right? And Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Here you are, just normal people, fishermen, people who were involved in politics, people who became tax collectors and had a franchise right up on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, Matthew, and some nondescript people, which I want you to, there's a sermon right there. There's some people in here you'll never really hear from again in the Gospels, but they matter to God. They matter to God. Do you you feel like nobody's noticing what you're doing? You matter to God. Whatever it is, maybe you're a silent prayer warrior that people don't know or see or hear. That's okay. You matter to God. Well, here in verse 17, he came down with them. And he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and he healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and he healed them all. Then, listen to this, he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. 
For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now do me a favor and pray with me. Well, Lord, thank you for these words. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would do something mighty here today in our hearts. This wouldn't just be a checkoff, Lord, a routine. No, it would be an encounter with you as we receive the words from heaven by your spirit in Jesus' name. Well, what do we say here about this time where Jesus comes down with them and stood on a level place? Well, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, a couple years ago, we went through about six, seven months, maybe, or maybe it was a little less than that, of the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Some people believe this sermon right here is the exact same occasion as Matthew 5. There is a few differences, though. Here it says, instead of sitting up in the mountains, he came and stood on a level place. And so authors or commentators call this sermon to distinguish it from the other sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, because he was standing on a level place. Is this the same sermon as the one in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? People argue over it all the time. But I don't think that's the point. Whether you believe this is the same sermon or whether you believe this is a different sermon that Jesus preached, note this. Rabbis during this time often had, nothing wrong with this, sermons that they prepared and preached on different occasions. Same sermon, different occasions. Boy, do I like that idea. It's a joke, but not really. So I don't know. I probably uh, lean toward the place that this is a, di- or lean toward the, uh, the thought that this is a different sermon. He d- does say that he may have been talking to some different people. Here there were all these multitudes, and he uh, was uh, ministering to disciples. In Matthew five, it's more pointed that he was talking just to his disciples. But yet later on in the Sermon on the Mount, they say there were there's some other people there. So I don't want to be dogmatic about it. What I want you to know is that. Jesus, like the rabbis of the time, I think had sermons that he preached over and over again. Nothing wrong with that. And this one was ultra important. Luke records it. Matthew records it. And it brings up something that Peter says to us in one of his letters. Peter says, I don't want to neglect or be unfaithful in putting you in remembrance of the things that you already know. We have to really watch ourselves, folks. There's a current or a group or a swell of Christian people who always are on the lookout for the neatest and coolest and most clever sermon stuff. And so whether it be the people delivering the sermons or the people receiving the sermons, they ain't happy unless they know newer and better, and shinier, and more clever things. But Jesus himself, and Peter reminds us, we need to be put in remembrance of things that we already know. Why do you think they say that? 
Because, Lord, (laughs) we're prone to wander. Lord, we might hear it on Sunday, but on Sunday night, we might not be living it. And we need to hear it. So, So it says something to the pastors, the teaching people. Just as Paul said, remember, the cross is central. The preaching of the cross to people is central. Whether they're non-believers, they haven't surrendered their life to Christ, they need to hear of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because the power is there. But also, all of our answers as we come into the family of God are found at the cross. Do you know how many times a year I answer the question, does God love me? Over and over again. Now, that's okay. I'm no... (laughs) I'm happy to do it, but it's a prevalent question. People, even in the church, want to know if Jesus loves them. And here's the things they say. They say things like this. You know, huh, I got let go from that job, and I don't have money for the rent. I wonder if Jesus loves me. Or, or, The guy I thought was going to marry walked out the door, or the girl I thought was going to marry went with somebody else. Does God really love me? And the Bible is clear and explicit that God loves you. You know the most famous quote of the Bible or verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world. How do we know that God loved the world? Should we talk about it at Christmas, the giving season? God gave his only son. If you want to know that God loves you, don't look in the circumstances of life. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the answer will never deviate. My answers will always, devi- or will always be the same to you. Do you know that you got I don't know why your bill is not being paid. No, don't know. But I know this, he loves you immensely because he sent his son to die for you. If you've had a kid, we we talked about this in Foundations. If you've had a kid, if you haven't, that's okay. Think of your friend or your your nephew or whatever. It's okay. But just think of somebody that's dear to you that's a kid that you just, listen, I just got to say it. I just have to be honest with you. I ain't giving up my kids for you. And when I was little and I would read that story, Abraham and Isaac, I'd go, oh my gosh, Lord, it's a horror story to me. And that's the point. It is. It's terribly awesome, but it's terrible, but it's beautiful, and it's graceful. And the Lord said, when you take communion, celebrate my death. Is that the weirdest thought ever? We're celebrating the death, and yet that is it. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? At the cross is where you see everything. Mercy, love, justice, it all comes colliding. We wouldn't give up our kids for each other. He did. It was the only way. How did I get to that? Here's how I got to that. Don't, you know, like, 
you, you know, come on, you've done this. I used to do this at Calvary Chapel, Honolulu. Don't put that on the tape. You know when that one pastor would come in and that pastor's teaching was real simplistic? And you said, oh, man, that pastor's teaching this week. I don't know if I'm even going to go. I mean, I've said that before. You probably are saying that every week, but you, you know. You, you know what I'm saying? Or, or, man, he just doesn't come up with the clever stories from the Old Testament. And see, you, you're missing it, man. You and I, if we just sat up here and read the words of Christ, that's putting us in remembrance of the things that we already may have known that the Lord wants to put into your heart and to live out. So don't get frustrated. I heard people say to me, you know, oh, we're doing Luke again. Oh, man, we're doing Luke? <laughs> really? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? You've probably said something like that before. I've probably said something like that before. These are the very words of God where he's putting us in remembrance of things that we already know. It's a beautiful thing. And he comes to this level place, and he's got his disciples, and power's going out from him. But you know, Jesus, this is his teaching time. And yet, as he teaches, many want to be healed, and he, and he does heal. And they are healed, but those healings are to signify or to put a stamp on his word and the truth of his words. And the multitudes come and they want to teach him, for power is going out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples in this Sermon on the Plain. And I read to you, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Or laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day, and leap, leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did the prophets. Listen, folks, I, I want you to catch something. I want you to catch this. To the world... The man we've just, the woman we've just described, or that is being described by Jesus, is wretched. The, man, the world does, doesn't want anything to do with that. What do you mean, be poor? What do you mean, go hungry now? What do you mean, to cry and to mourn now? What do you mean, to have people hate me. I want everybody to love me and like me. What do you mean that there are woes for the rich? What do you mean that it's woeful to be full now or to laugh now or for men to speak well of you now? That just seems sick to me, the world says. And Jesus says, listen, I don't think Jesus is saying there's anything of each of these things that are wrong in and of themselves. But what he's saying is, is when you live for the temporal, it's all you get. You catching that? Yeah, if you put away everything else and work, 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 go to school, get your education, get your diplomas, work, 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 deny everything else, forget the Lord, forget your family, work, 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 you are going to accumulate wealth. But that's all you'll ever have. Here he says, what counts in the kingdom of heaven? Because what he's teaching here 
is not the things that we do. Will you please write that down? The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, is not the things that a Christian does. It's who a Christian is. And it's a great big difference. Write it down. It's not what we do. It's who Christians are. How do I know this? In your Bible here, in the red letters, when it says, blessed are you poor, see, are you is in italics. There's really no connecting there, words there in the Greek. It just says, blessed, poor. That's what it says. Who you are to be blessed is poor. What do you, what do you mean? What do you, what do you say? Well, to start the Christian life, this is where you start. Actually, to start every morning, this is where you start. But to start the Christian life, this is where you start. You come to the Lord knowing that you're spiritually bankrupt. You have not... Listen, folks, listen to this. This is important. I didn't grow up this way, so I got this backwards. And I get it backwards now a lot. I have nothing good to offer the Lord in and of himself apart from him. Nothing. I'm bankrupt. You see, it would be tempting for the pastor or the worship leader or the elders of the church to think, whoa, I stand up here, so I must have some good stuff to offer, Lord. But apart from God, I'm nothing. Nothing. You see, but the world doesn't know it. The world doesn't know it. There has to be this place where you begin in the Christian life, where you recognize you're poor. The self-righteousness, the thinking that you're something in and of yourself, it's got to go. He says, blessed are poor. If you want to be happy, you'll recognize how poor you are. Wow, who was taught that in American history or American civics or American commerce? or American? Who was taught that in school? Nobody. The world looks at you and goes, are you out of your gourd? Blessed are the poor. Jesus always starts there. Is there somebody that can't be witnessed to? No, not somebody that can't be witnessed to. Is there somebody that can't be saved? Well, this is a big debate. I'll get a lot of emails about this. But if you think you don't need the Lord, you're not going to have him. But blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we talked about this when we did the Sermon on the Mount. Where's the kingdom of the heaven now? It's anywhere where Christ rules and reigns. And I look around at a room full of people, praise the Lord, where Christ rules and reigns in their hearts. Jesus is coming back. He will establish a kingdom on earth. But now the body of Christ, the Christians, we're Christians. So we start by being poor. Remember, I read from you, or or, or for you last week, a commentary about how we abide in Christ. Remember this? How we abide in Christ. It's from John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it'll be done for you. And I read a commentary uh, about this uh, from R.A. Torrey. And one of the things he was saying in order for uh, the vine, the life of the vine to flow to the branches, that we must renounce all of the self-life. 
So even every day as we've depended upon the Lord and we've gotten saved, yes, but now as we abide, part of abiding is recognizing, listen folks, that we are poor each morning. Think of something you're good at. Just think of it right now. Think of something you're good at. Maybe you play the piano, maybe you sing, maybe, you, maybe you're a good visitor, maybe you're a good hospitality person. The temptation for you and for me, when those opportunities come around of something that you're good at, is to just ignore the Lord's help in that or the Lord's gifting in that and go do it in your own strength. You see? And the Bible calls us to abide, to let all of his life flow into ours, to just renounce the self-life and say, Lord, I'm poor. And now here's the kicker. Here's why the world thinks we're loopy. Because when you do that is when you become truly happy. That's where joy comes. Blessed, 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 blessed. We are joyful people when we recognize to walk in what God has called us in, we must renounce self and understand that we're spiritually poor. That's where we start. That's where Jesus starts in his sermon. Either the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount. Next thing he talks about is, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Those who, what do we talk about? You're mourning over your sin We read it last week, again, in the communion times. Remember what David said? David said, after the sin with Bathsheba, he just, the groanings with him, and he couldn't settle down, he couldn't, nothing could help. But remember, he cried out and he said, I'm going to just call it what it is, Lord. He didn't say that, but that's what he was saying. I sinned against you. That's what I really did, is I sinned against you. And what I want, Lord, is to hunger now and to be filled. Would you come as I'm spiritually bankrupt and fill me now? Lord, as I'm hungry now, as I uh, uh, you thirst for your righteousness, you'll fill me. And, and Lord, even if I weep now over my sins, over the sin that I've done against you, Lord, you'll bring laughing into my life and joy. Think about it, folks. What does the world tell you to do? Avoid all of that nonsense, they say. That's what the world says. Avoid that. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have a great time. Enjoy yourself. What is every commercial saying to you? You deserve it. You deserve it. And to go and to treat yourself and and, and enjoy. That's what the world says. The Lord says, no, step back and recognize your poverty Recognize that you need to be filled as you hunger for his righteousness, as you even mourn over your sin. You'll be filled. Then he goes on and he says something. Oh, man. We can almost, you know, it's just so upside down. Blessed are you when men hate you. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Remember you're called a couple things. You're called the salt of the earth. You're also called the light of the world. What happens when you pour salt in a wound? 
Yeah, you hate it. It hurts. What happens for some? See, what, who you represent as the life of Christ pulses in and out of you. You're an ambassador for Christ. And the Bible tells us that when we come into situations, when we come into people's lives, when we go and share with people the love of Christ, it's going to be to some this pleasing aroma, but to some it's going to be the smell of putrid death. And Jesus says, they'll hate you for it. You ever been hated, ridiculed, alienated, when you share the gospel, many of you maybe have done it at your house with your family. And you, you, you share, and it doesn't go quite the way you thought. And you say, man, goodness, did I present that right? Did I say the things right? What? Listen to this. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. Who here likes to be excluded? Oh, yeah, right. And when they exclude you and they revile you and cast out your name as evil. Do you understand what it's saying right there? When people talk about you, when people talk about you, you're going to get talked about. Who here likes to be talked about? Nobody, but you're going to be talked about. And Jesus says, I want you to put this in perspective. Put it in perspective. So here he goes. He says, blessed are you, and they revile you, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. Now, I'm going to take you to a couple places. Just look at Philippians 3. Go there. Go to Philippians 3 and look in verse 10. I could tell you the quote, but I'd prefer you just look at it. Go to Philippians 3, verse 10. Paul got to this place, I pray you get to this place, but by the way, before you do, I pray that I get to this place, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You say, okay, stop right there, just don't quit, quit reading. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. There's something mysteriously cohesive and binding you and the Lord are bound when people don't like you for his name's sake because he understands how you feel. Turn over to Colossians 1.24. Colossians, not too far from Philippians, 1.24. Paul said this, I now, re what? Am I reading this right? I now rejoice in my sufferings. You know what Americans say? Lord, get me out of this suffering. You don't love me. Uh, do, you even, do you even care for me? Have you even looked at me lately? Uh, why am I suffering? Paul said, no, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of a body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God the mystery which has been hidden from the ages, what a run-on sentence, and from generation, but now has been revealed to his saints. He rejoiced in the sufferings for Christ because it bonded him to the Lord. Listen to this. And he could minister to people more effectively. You catching that? He saw. Okay, I'm going to give you one more. 2 Corinthians 12.10. 2 Corinthians 12.10. 
Come on, man, who writes this stuff? This is so foreign to our thinking without the Lord. Therefore, verse 10, chapter 12, I take pleasure in infirmities, in infirmities, sorry, in reproaches. Do you know what a reproach is? You do something and somebody criticizes you for it. I know people hate that. I take pleasure in it, Paul says, in being sick, in being reproached. I love it, Paul says, when I don't have something. That's what he says right here. Not Americans, buddy. We say, do you even love me? I take pleasure when people persecute me. I take pleasure when I'm distressed. All for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You can see the Lord most glaringly in somebody's life. Not when everything's going so fantastic, but when things worldly have fallen apart. That's when you see the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Time out. I want you to think about the life of Paul. Best educated. I mean, this is the Harvard and Yale of the Jewish society. Had unbelievable access. Somehow, some way, even became a Roman citizenship or citizen. He's got access, buddy, and access is fun to the world. He's got education, he's got access, he's got prestige, he's got power, he's got money probably, he's got high, upper-level class distinction, everything the world would ever want. And he has an encounter with the Lord, and the world would say, the rug was swept out from underneath him, and he just was, you know, just boom, blown away. So that he didn't have power, he didn't have money, he didn't have a career, he didn't have all these sorts of things. He didn't have access anymore. In fact, people were scared of him, and even the people who he now came to love, his brothers and sisters in Christ, you understand everything that he once held dear, this should be a song, he now counts as loss. So catch it. Paul's whole life is a sermon and a testimony to the Sermon on the Plain. Because what the Sermon on the Plain is trying to tell you right here is you'll never be happy if you're depending upon all your circumstances to be right. Because here's what, it's like, you know, you know that whack-a-mole game? You played at the carnivals with that hammer, and you think you got one mole down and hit on the head, but three other pop up? That's life, folks. It'll never be smooth sailing. There's always going to be problems. And what the Sermon on the Plain is trying to tell you here is, one, you start with spiritual poverty. You understand that you're spiritually bankrupt and that Jesus must fill you up and reconcile you back to the Father. And once that happens, listen, circumstances are dead to you. Are you catching that? Circumstances don't rule your joy or your blessing. Quit putting on social media 
Just quit it. All your problems. There are no problems. There are only opportunities. Paul just told us, I count every one of those things, even sickness. Is that a word for today? Even sickness I count as a pleasure because now I identify with you, Lord. I'm fellowshipping with you, and I can minister to other people. Oh, my goodness. Circumstances are dead to to the Christian. He says, when people even revile you or talk about you behind your back or whatever to your face, count it as a privilege. Understand that your reward is great in heaven. And we rent through all the scriptures. Rejoice and leap because you know that the Lord is at work in the tough times. Do you know this? And woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you, for you'll, you'll, you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See, the world's got it backwards. They're chasing the temporal, but they'll never get to the eternal. So here, right here, is where we see why the world is so anxious and unsettled. It's because the stuff they have now, they can have it but it'll never satisfy in here. Only one can do that, Jesus Christ. One author says this about these four woes. You've got to think about this now. Listen to this. H.H. Farmer said this about these four woes that I just read you. To Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values, the worldly values versus the eternal values. To Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is that, excuse me, is not that you are doomed to bitter disappointment. Listen, but that you are not. Not that you do not achieve what you want, but that you do. I'm going to read it again because you got to think about this. To Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is not that you are doomed to bitter disappointment, but that you are not. Not that you do not achieve what you want, but that you do. (laughs) You guys are quiet today. Let me tell you something. That's the message if you ever read the book, The Screwtape Letters. There it is. Just get people to feel comfortable, and they'll never look for the Savior. Don't come in red horns, Linda Blair. Don't do that. Get them comfortable. Get them thinking about their life and their kingdom and their white picket fence and their vacations and their golf games. Get them thinking about that. And they'll never have the peace and security and rest of Jesus Christ. What did it? A plan, but thank goodness our Savior has defeated that plan. Well, listen. He goes on to say, in a series of teachings that's part of this Sermon on the Plain, but that was seem at first sight kind of disconnected, or first read kind of disconnected. Well, the Jewish rabbis had this way of teaching that they called stringing beads. 
They would just give you important things about life that you think are seemingly disconnected, but they're putting something together to make it beautiful. And here Jesus goes. And the first thing he says is to love your enemies. Let me just read it with you. Verse 27, but I say to you, are you catching it? Remember, remember, folks? Well, every time you hear Jesus say, but I say to you, you go, whoa, he has authority. Because the people who are hearing this are used to having people, rabbis say, according to the prophets, da-da-da-da-da-da, or according to the rabbi such and such, da-da-da-da-da-da. Jesus goes, but I say to you. And he says this, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. <laughs> you you want to know, the Bible tells us in 1 John, raise your hand if you know how to show your love for God. Raise it. Do you know how to show your love for God? The Bible says obey. <laughs> and here's one of them. I say to you, hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. I'll read that again. But I say to you here, love your enemies. And he doesn't just say tolerate your enemies, folks. He says actively do good. Bless, or do, uh, bless those who curse you and praise, pray for those who spitefully use you. So come tonight. I don't want to hear about people who've backstabbed you. I want to hear about you praying for them. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now, don't get too mixed up. We're talking here about personal insults. The, govern, govern, the government has a responsibility to strain evil man from physical assaults. You, you get that, right? We're not talking about go down to the local bar when people are drunk and want to fight and let people beat you up. That's not what this is. The government takes care of that. We're talking about personal insults. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. In other words, bear long with people. You don't see much of that, even in the church. You don't see people bearing long with people. What you see is, as long as you're good to me and you agree with everything I say, I'll be your friend. But as soon as you disagree with just a little bit, the way we worship, the way... Uh, you know, you like hymns, I like this. Well, have a nice life. No, no. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, steals from you. Don't withhold your tunic either. By the way, in Exodus 22, just for your learning, and in Deuteronomy 24, there was a law against taking people's cloaks. Jesus is playing upon that. Don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. You know that phrase that young kids said, it's like about a year old now, about, or maybe two years, about being extra? Yeah, well, he's saying go extra. Not in some false, fakey way. Not in some false, fakey way. He's saying love them even more. Just love them. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from, be very generous. And from him who takes away your goods, don't ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, 
you also do to them likewise. By the way, you could go, go to Philippians, you, you don't, just write this in your Bible or in your notes, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. All of this takes discernment. There's nothing like this chapter to sharpen your discernment. What do I mean? Well, there's a point with some people when you're giving them stuff that all you're doing is enabling them in their sin. And I don't think that's what this is talking about. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. So you and I must be discerning in these areas. I laugh with the guys in the, who are elders of the church. You know why I laugh? When we get a call from the local motel. We get calls from the local motels, folks. We get emails from the local motels, folks. And it says, hey, me and my baby are hungry. We need such and such amount, and we need this amount, and we'll meet you down on this corner of 51 and East Brewston Road, and could you give us some money? And you know, what do you do when you're a Christian? What do you think? You're like, oh, mom and baby. But thank goodness I'm a part of a local pastor's email chain that send the email on. They say, oh, yeah, we all got that. Here's why. People are trying to dupe people. Just being honest with you. And you have to be very discerning. And we have a motto here that we've stolen from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. If we make an error, we'd rather err on the side of grace. So if somebody burns us, okay, they burn us. We are erring on the side of grace. But there comes a point when you're giving people stuff when the stuff no longer is helping they need Jesus. And at that point, you have to say no more, and that's tough. So there's discernment. But here, he says, just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. <laughs> that's the censure, all right? What do you want for yourself? I know what you want for yourself. Tell me you don't want this. You want mercy. <laughs> Don't you? Lord, I need mercy. And you know it, right? You know it for yourself. I did this. I did that. I need mercy. Lord, I need grace. Lord, I need understanding. Lord, I need patience with me. I, Lord, I know. I did it again. I need your mercy, right? That's what you say. But then when you see somebody on the news screw up, fry them! Come on. And by the way, just because somebody's famous doesn't mean they're not a person. So he says, just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Anybody can do that. Unbelievers can do that. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Why do you think that is? Well, the answer is in 36. Hope for nothing in return. You know what? Even in my fleshy, my, my flesh, even when I read that, rears its ugly head. 
Because you know what I say? Really? Nothing in return? See, but there's something greater and higher going on as you say to the Lord, I agree to do it, and he empowers you to do it. There's something greater and higher. The beauty is he moves you down the path of Christ-likeness, sanctification. In fact, in 36, he says, be merciful just as your father also is, is merciful. In other words, if you do all these things when they're, they like you, what credit is that to you? But listen, for even sinners, but love your enemies, do good, lending, hoping for nothing in return. Folks, folks, that's grace. You're going to become like your father. And part of that is you give with no strings attached. You catching that? You give help. You give this. You give that with no strings attached just because you love. You're serving. You would love the Lord. You'll go to that house or to that person or whatever, the ones who've even stabbed you in the back. I have sometimes people say, you know, they'll ask me what I'm doing or whatever. And, you know, maybe I'm going to go take them water to their house or something. And maybe your friend's with me or something. They'll say, wait a minute, you're taking that to them? I say, yeah. And they say, you know, right? When you're not around, they say, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I always say, in my smart aleckness, hey, listen, I was born at night, but not last night. I, I know. But that doesn't disqualify me from doing it. Right? You've had that happen to you. Here, he says, love your enemies, do good. Hope for nothing in return, and your reward will be just so-so. It doesn't. He says it'll be great. And don't get it in your mind when you read this, when it says, and you will be sons of the Most High. Oh, man. This, when I first became a Christian, I go, oh, man, if I do this stuff, I'm in. That's not the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Plain is, you rest in Christ, you count on Christ, his life comes in you, the vine gives his life to the branches, branches do this. You are sons and daughters of the king, you're never more like Christ than when you give to people who don't even like you. For he's kind to the unthankful, you understand that? He's kind to the unthankful and the evil. You ever caught yourself saying, I can't believe it. I didn't even say thanks. I mean, I'd have done it anyway, but could they have just said thanks? They're so ungrateful. <laughs> well, Jesus isn't caught off guard by that. He says, sons and daughters of the king will give even to the unkind, or the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Here's some other things. Well, maybe we don't have time to go there. <laughs> we don't. This is a good big topic. Here's what I want us to do over this season and all seasons. I just got to tell you something, folks. These things are splitting the church. Whether it's this church or any church. I'm just telling you, these things are splitting the church. Now, why do I tell you that? 
is because Jesus called us to love each other. And I know you all have different opinions about this. But the enemy is using this two-cent mask to divide the church. He's not going to prevail. But in this season, why do I say this? You have opportunities to love people who disagree with you. Whether you're the most strict anti-masker in the history of anti-masking, or whether you're the most strict pro-masker in the history of masks, you have opportunities here to live this out against that backdrop. I get it when people say 2020, what a dud year, all the stuff we put on Facebook. And I know what you're saying. I, no one wants people to get sick and to pass away or even to get sick or no one wants people to flu, whatever, uh, COVID, nothing. We don't want any of that. I get it. But in many ways, 2020 has been an amazing blessing. It's stripped away a lot of stuff. It's made us look at ourselves it's revealed in people's hearts what they really are. We have an amazing opportunity right here to fill up with the Holy Spirit and to lay our lives down for even the people who disagree with us. So as we go out this week, May we be people who are filled up and prayed up and are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ so like Paul, we can say, when we're weak, you shine the brightest. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this day and for all the days that you've given us. Lord, Obviously, we're not happy with and pleased with <laughs> all the things that have come with this pandemic. And yet, Lord, in the middle of the pandemic, we can see that you're working for good. Lord, that you're stripping things away from us, that you're having us return to your word and to praise and to worship. But Lord, for some, there's a falling away. And we don't pray in any spiritually superior way. We pray, Lord, show us what you'd want to do in us. And then, Lord, for anybody who's drifted, Lord, which our hearts are tending to do, Lord, that you would draw us close and we'd respond to that call and just come and hide under the shadow of your wings. Lord, we'd receive your love, your resource and strength to go out today and love people the way you want us to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. And uh, we will see you uh, tonight, Lord willing, for the uh, service. Remember, we have prayer cards back there. If you can't make it to the service, please write out a prayer card. 
We just ordered a thousand prayer cards, so we want you to really fill up that box, okay? All right, God bless you guys, and, uh, but we love you. God bless you.